0: Thanks for listening and supporting the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. This episode is brought to you by Kettle and Fire. As I focus on gut healing with my family and my clients, bone broth is a nutrient-rich food with an abundance of collagen and glycine. Real bone broth can support gut healing, joint protection, reducing inflammation, and a big one, balancing minerals or electrolytes on a meat-based diet. Kettle and Fire is a brand I trust as the next best option to making your own homemade bone broth. They only use 100% grass-finished beef bones and 100% free-range chicken bones. They use no additives or preservatives, no antibiotics or hormones, no artificial flavors or colors, and every serving has 10 grams of protein. When I first started eating meat-based, I had homemade bone broth at almost every meal. I'm glad that brands like Kettle and Fire are around to make quality bone broths more accessible. Make sure to get your bone broth at kettleandfire.com and use code nutritionwithjudy at checkout to get 20% off your purchase. Thanks for listening and let's get back to the show. Laura and I are just going to be talking really candid. This is what this podcast is all
1: about. It's one thing to say I want to eat something else that's not meat. It's a whole other thing to say you need to eat something else that's not meat. If you notice that you're
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. My name is Judy Cho, and I'm here with my co-host, Laura Spath, and we are so excited. We have a guest today. Leanne, thank you so much for joining us today. If you can just introduce yourself to the people listening.
2: Yeah. Hi, Judy. Hi, Laura. Hey, guys. I'm so so happy to see you. Well, I guess hear you. You hear me. Um, Yeah, my name is Leanne Pogel. I'm a holistic nutritionist. Um, I started in the space back in 2007. So it's been a while. I started studying nutrition because I had an eating disorder. And it all kind of started from me just wanting to learn what I was doing to my body. Um, Fast forward to 2014, I still hadn't gotten a cycle. I had had amenorrhea for eight years. And that kind of set me on this trajectory of understanding what fat does to hormones. And so I started eating a ketogenic diet. Uh, I did the traditional 20 grams of carbs that totally tanked my adrenals. And it was really bad. I was doing it all wrong. And so I've kind of found my little area of the internet where I share how to do a ketogenic diet for people that don't want to be super hardcore, like me. Um, I've healed myself from amenorrhea, hormone imbalances. And now I'm getting into more subclinical work over the last couple of years my mom has gotten pretty sick and it's forced me to learn a whole bunch of things to do with parasites and mold and heavy metals and so I'm I'm definitely going on a new path of really understanding how keto results in all of that and going on my own journey finding out I too have mold and parasites and most people do so it's been fun to kind of I'm an ongoing learner and I'm constantly evolving as time goes on so that's a little bit about me
0: In terms of your 20 grams of carbs, you just said that you don't follow that protocol. Is that what you just said?
2: Yeah, I did it for the first 60 or no, not 60 days. It was six months um, where I was eating 20 grams of total carbs. Um, And for somebody who had had amenorrhea and an eating disorder going that low in carbohydrates for me personally, only exacerbated the issues and did not help my hormones whatsoever. Um, so I learned that I needed to cycle my carbohydrates where every couple of days I increased them. So I wasn't always doing the same thing over and over. And that's what I found to work best for me. And many of the clients that I attract is that, that variety in our eating style is, is kind of the winning ticket for many of us.
1: What are the other, Sorry, what are the other factors along with that? So the twenty grams of carbs do you have a goal of protein versus um fat percentages, or where how does that end up? As a goal? yeah,
2: yeah, so for myself personally, I don't track macros so much anymore. I think you kind of get to a space where you've done it so many times you can tell just by eyeballing things where they kind of lie. but when I was first starting out, uh, another big mistake I made was not um prioritizing protein you know back in the day everyone was really terrified of protein back in 2014 so we were eating 10 to 15 percent protein thinking that that was best for our ketones Yeah. Uh, now i like to keep it like like 30 percent if i could choose a number like around 30 ish percent um and for carbohydrates um usually not 20 grams total. Um, Now myself personally, I use net. um, And with my clients, we're doing perhaps 20 net up to 80 grams net, depending on health imbalances. Like, I think the problem is that people listen to podcasts, and they have all this information. And then they just say, okay, well, this is what's going to work for me without understanding how they're coming to a situation and the keto diet that I needed to follow when I had amenorrhea and my hormones were all over the place. I still had an eating disorder is very different than the keto. I followed five years following where I was lifting weights again and running again and doing all of those things. So it has to adapt to our lifestyle. So the protein piece, um, has definitely increased, um, when I learn more about my body and I, I don't think that anyone really should eat 10% protein ever.
0: <laughs> yeah. Agree. I, I agree with a lot of what you said. I, I think a lot of times we follow people on the internet or hear these formulas and those are the the easy things to kind of pick up on and say, I want to look like them or I want to be like them. And they say to follow this equation and it doesn't work for every single individual. Just like you were mentioning that you struggled with an eating disorder. So I did too. And that 20 grams, any allowance of carbs for me would eventually make me fall. So interestingly for me being an abstainer, um, doing a carnivore diet where there's no carbs involved. It just made the decision-making better at that Mm -hmm. point in my life. And now I can try to dabble and add some carbs, but it took a while to get here with my eating disorder, but I didn't struggle with the menorrhea. So I didn't have as much of that hormonal side to have to think about. So it's really interesting how, based on where we're starting our, our recommendations will be different, right? Uh, you and I both work with so many different clients. We know mm-hmm. that there is no one solution for everyone.
2: Like not even close. I mean, you think that maybe it'll be the same and you see a pattern and you're like, well, I did this with so-and-so. So like we can try. And then it's like a week later, you're like, nope that didn't work. Like it's just, even if the patterns are exactly the same on labs and their symptomology is exactly the same, you know, you could recommend something and they come back to you saying this did this and that did that. And you're like, wow, okay. Okay. Back to square one. So you really, really have to soak up the information that you're hearing and then Relate it to how you're feeling and not just push through things because so-and-so said this is totally going to work because it's it worked for them, but it's probably not going to work for you in the exact same way.
0: So given that, right? So I, I know a lot of listeners and um, people in the internet world of things do still like tangible <laughs> steps and tips. So of all the years that you've been working with people in, in the low-carb space, are there certain... I guess, truths that you find beneficial for everyone? Um, it sounds like one is protein, um, increasing your protein amounts.
2: Yeah, oh, this is a good question. Uh, I would say nutrient density is a big one. I think a lot of people try to fit in, will it fit my macros? I don't care what's in that as long as it fits this template that I've created and the, nutrition de- the nutrient density is key. I think also too, and I alluded to it previously, is like, if you don't feel right, Backtrack and assess and move forward. I think that works for everybody. Um, and just not pushing um, water, key electrolytes. I, I think we live in a world where absolutely everyone needs electrolytes. I, I mean the amount of stress that people are under and how much adrenal hypo and hyperfunction I see on labs, like. I'm just convinced that everyone needs to take electrolytes, um, in some capacity. I'm sure I'm missing. So, oh, movement. Um, you know, technically, since this is just audio, I should not be sitting. I should be pacing, <laughs> but I want to see your faces, like just moving your body, um, and getting that set up is just so incredibly important i mean i could go on there's so many things that i think every everyone liver focusing on the liver and just the health of the liver detoxification that's a big one i see all the time and understanding the role that the liver has and even weight loss and making sure that you are detoxifying properly um and caring for your liver i think everyone could benefit from those those are kind of like the key ones i think
1: do you have i've never heard that before so when you said liver i was like oh she's gonna talk about eating liver so I'm, like, can't handle doing that. So when you talk about detoxifying liver, what are you, like, what does that mean? I've never heard anybody talk about my own personal liver health.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. So the liver has, depending on who you talk with, the liver has three detoxification pathways and – or detoxification stages, rather, I should say. So phase one is really to make sure that all of the – um metabolic um, metabolites and everything that you've that your body's just creating, gets turned into a water soluble um, substance. So it can be released. So you have um, your metabolic pieces, you have toxins, uh, your fat cells store toxins. So that's once you're starting to lose weight, it's going to go up to the liver. So the liver's job in that phase one is to make things water soluble. Then we move over to phase two and that's to um, conjugate. And I think of it as like buddying up all these things that need to be exited. So that conjugation can take place through Methylation, glucuronidation, all these different, all these Asians in phase two to buddy that up. And then phase three is making sure that you're pooping properly and your kidneys are healthy. A big pattern I see for my clients is that their kidneys are suboptimally functioning. Um, And so by supporting the kidneys, making sure that you're drinking enough water, making sure that your adrenals are healthy because that's going to affect the kidneys and the kidneys affect the adrenals. Um, And just that whole pathway from phase one to three, is supported um, through nutrient density, proper amino acids like glycine, taurine, cysteine. These are phase two amino acids. If you're not eating protein, you're not detoxifying properly. And so also that you're pooping. And so prioritizing liver health overall is so key to just basic function of I mean so many things the liver does so much and I can't tell you how many clients I've been seeing with these patterns of high estrogen that's liver and gut you know Um, proper cleansing like getting red eyes when you're fasting that's not normal Um, so just really understanding supporting the liver and and does that answer your question Laura
1: yeah, definitely. I know people ask sometimes about um through my own trial and error and weight loss and alcohol, right? People would ask, it's a zero carb alcohol, like that doesn't have any carbs in it. It's not gonna affect me. And I realized very early on in weight loss that like it I can't lose weight if I'm drinking alcohol regularly. And it's be and it kind of through my own basic under research and understanding of the liver, it's because your liver has to take a break from like cleansing out that fat, like you mentioned, and it has to then process the alcohol. And then it goes back to burning the fat and then goes back. Mm -hmm. So if you're having a zero carb drink, daily alcohol, then you're not going to likely it's your weight loss is going to be slowed tremendously. And so,
2: um,
1: that's, that was kind of my only understanding. I get lost a little bit when you're talking about phase two, but things you saying things like eating protein is going to help with that. Um, what are some other things that we could eat or do, Have proper electrolytes, water intake, like you mentioned. What else could I do to ensure that I'm that phase two part is working well?
2: Yeah, the phase two part is majorly amino acids. You do have some of the B vitamins, um, are important. TMG, which is a methylate, like helps methylation is important in that phase. Making sure that you're properly methylating, um, is really important. How do you know? Um, you can test your vitamin B12 and your MCV is a good indication on just your basic CBC, um, uh, blood panel, whether or not it's, if it's high, I believe the value is over 90, then you probably have an issue with methylation. So that can really help phase two. But I mean, the big ones are glycine, taurine, and cysteine, the amino acids, just making sure that you're eating enough protein. And the big thing with phase two is if your gut is a total mess and you're not properly assimilating these nutrients... right you can eat red meat all day long and you're not going to get those amino acids. So it really comes in conjunction. And that's the thing. I think, so many of us focus on just one thing and we try to do it really well. But when it comes to health, there are so many different pieces that you really have to make sure that over time you're supporting various things. You've heard people talk about how beneficial bone broth is. Well, it's really high in glycine. So drink that and that's taken away. You've uh, like checked off the list. Even if you have, um, an imbalanced gut. It helps with your gut and it has glycine. Okay. Phase two, check with phase one and supporting that detoxification uh, pathway. It's really um, glutathione, uh, folic acid, B vitamins. Uh, vitamin E is fantastic because it's a fat soluble antioxidant. So, It comes into, and I know this is like, you guys are carnivore and stuff, but I don't know how it works for like carnivore and making sure that you're having enough antioxidants. I'm not at all knowledgeable in any of that. But for me, it's making sure that there's a ton of color on my plate in the form of plants because I can eat plants and I love plants and I just could never, like I I could never be carnivore. Like I say this, I've tried, it's just, I love plants. And so for those that eat plants, that's color. For those that don't, we have two other people that can probably tell you how to do that.
0: <laughs> there's other nutrients that act like antioxidants. And then I also make the case in my book where if you get too many antioxidants, it could be prooxidants. But yes, like you were talking about, um some of the amino acids can act like antioxidants. And I forgot there's a whole list in the book. So I think cool. you can do it. But that's where I, and I'm so on the same page with you with this liver health because, If we come into like a meat-based diet or a low carb diet and you had like fatty liver disease or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or you drink alcohol, then your liver may be functioning suboptimally. But we need the liver to function well to produce ketones, for example. So there's a lot of those things. And so when we are inundating the liver, which also produces the bile to help break down a very high fat diet. Um, Mm -hmm. All of these things really take into play if you can do a low-carb diet well, if your liver function is not good. I think it's so good that you brought up all of this. And this is a side note why I brought up the hypervitaminosis with organ meats, because that's another role we're placing on the liver is, well, now we need you to also store all these excess nutrients that Mm -hmm. your body may not need. And where it's going to be stored is the liver. And then it's an extra burden on the liver our livers when we're consuming too much exogenous livers from animals. So
2: yeah, completely. I did a, an interview with somebody the other day and we were talking about DNA and you know how you can test your DNA and they have those companies that then you can say, make me a special supplement filled with all these things that I'm deficient in. And I'm like, um, so like that's not going to work because it says that I need like a ton of vitamin A and D and K and like that, I don't even know what my levels are right now. She's like, you can't over supplement those things. And I was like, oh, girl, yes, you can. <laughs> so you got to be really careful. And even yeah. B12 and B9 are stored in the liver. And people like just pop these things like candy. And I'm like, slow down. Let's make sure you actually need this. Like, do you actually need this? Because it does. It, it does affect the liver. And it's unnecessary. It's a waste of money. Spend it on like beautiful grass-fed beef instead, you know? I think that's hard because sometimes people just want to buy something to make them
1: healthier and it's easier and people are willing to spend a lot of money on something that they think will make things easier or work or healthier. And it's also a lot of times they're used to that because their doctors have given them supplements and medications to fix their diabetes, their nutritionists, like whoever they're working with. A lot of times the, you know, gives them those things and says, here, take these things and you'll get better. Mm
2: -hmm. And I think
1: that sometimes it's necessary. You know, Judy talks a lot about how a lot of people do need gut health support and some do need supplements in the beginning, but it's, you don't need every supplement that somebody tells you to swipe up on. And I think that it's somehow, if I spend this money and I buy this supplement, I will be more motivated and I will do better and I'll be healthier and it'll make it work this time for me. Um, I think, you know, whenever you start a new hobby or a new way of eating, it's like, what can I buy to like get this happening? And I mean, I love spending money. People love spending money more than we should, and it ends up happening on things that we don't need a lot, for sure.
2: I'm so glad you mentioned the swipe ups, Laura. Because when I start working with a client, I'll look through their supplement list, and it'll be like these random things, and I'm like, Yeah, why? And she's like, But this is the probiotic that's supposed to help with the blah blah blah. And I'm like, I don't like so and so told me to swipe
1: up. They have a discount code. Like I offer discount codes. (laughs) I'm not, not knocking people that do. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think that really comes down to the empowerment piece and also spend your money. I I wish that I could go back and tell myself, like, spend your money on a good coach to teach you things over six months to a year until they graduate you and then save up your money and do it again. Because I've had a handful of coaches that I've worked with since about 2008 and they've changed the game for me and everyone has something a little bit different to provide. But it's custom to that person. And I think just understanding that and just how much money we can waste on random things that we don't understand, um, oh, it would have saved me a lot of time to know that, you know, before I started studying this and before I got going. Um, Yeah, it's a good point.
0: I work with a lot of clients, obviously, from the internet because I'm on social media. And so Mm. the positive is they'll learn a lot of my content from the content I put out. The negative is that I swear maybe 20 to 30% of some of the conversations I have with them is, oh, well, in the period I haven't talked to you, so-and-so was selling this thing. And so now I'm trying it. And what do you think? Or I'll get emails saying, hey, um, so-and-so is sharing this. What are your thoughts on this? And there's always a trend on the internet about some product. yes. And so there is a period where I'm always having to refute someone's opinion or agree with them, or yeah. So I I totally see that. There was a few clients where I eventually had to say, if you trust me and you decide to work with me, you have to trust what I'm recommending. And if it's not on your protocol, I'm saying you don't need it right now. Yeah. And so it, you don't have to do your other research and look for someone else to buy something from because now your supplement list is getting bigger and bigger. And already your supplement list is big from working on gut supports.
2: Yes. It's like, I've got this, like, just go take a nap or walk around the block. Trust me, I've got this. Like, just, I know I get that too. Or I think one of the big things is relying too heavily on supplements. You know, I, I really feel like we do not need more than eight. Like even eight is pushing it. Like I like to say six, but like sometimes I'll go to eight. But I mean, I have clients that I've worked with for a while, like over eight months, and they refuse to let go of their other supplements. They're just like, no, I'm just going to keep doing it. You recommend whatever, but I'm going to keep doing these things. And it's like, there's supplement fatigue, like your body cannot handle this. And also, I, I really believe you shouldn't have to take a supplement for more than three months. Ideally, like ideally 4 to 6 weeks this is just like a jump start to get things going so we can fix the underlying stuff but if you've been taking a supplement for 2 years no like i just i no no that then you're not fixing the problem and I think people don't understand. And I I mean, I've done it for myself, like, but it's just so good. I'm just going to keep taking it. But like, let's figure out why you need to take it because this is not normal. This shouldn't be the way that it is. Let's fix the thing so you can stop spending money on that that you don't need.
0: Yeah, I definitely think there's a psychological component to it. Um, Mm -hmm. I have some clients that it takes a lot of effort to get them to eat more. And so One of the band aids is a nutrient support. And so I barely use nutrients, maybe minerals, but in general, I don't like to give like synthetic vitamins. I usually just do the gut support. If you are eating the right diet and working on gut health and reducing stress, then you should be able to get off those within six months. And then from there, the nutrition should come from your meats. But I do have clients that then stay on some of the nutrient supports because, again, they're, you know, the biggest fear is I can't eat that much fat. I don't want to gain weight. And so they undereat and the Band-Aid is the nutrient support.
2: Yeah. Oh, malnutrition. I mean... Isn't it just crazy? I'm starting to really become obsessed with functional blood chemistry and starting to see patterns in people's regular labs where doctors will review them and look for clinical issues and diagnose disease based on these labs, but they're not going to see the subclinical patterns. They don't care about the subclinical patterns because they're not subclinical. And I can't tell you how many, like you look at people's food logs and you're like, they eat beautifully. This is wonderful. I don't think it's enough, but it's beautifully out. like, I mean, they're doing everything right. And then you start to look at the patterns and you're like, "Mm, they're not eating enough. They're not eating enough. They're not, whoa, they're not eating enough. And so that's really concerning when it starts to show up on a cellular level. Like that's what your blood labs are. That's your cells. If it's showing up there, I mean, it's trickling down everything, your organs, your tissues, everything is not getting what they need to, to function properly. So it's, it's so important to eat enough.
1: <laughs> I think it's so natural for anybody starting a carnivore or keto diet, especially when you're coming from a standard American diet or something that's high carbs with high carbs, you get hungry so often and you need mm-hmm. to eat something regularly. And so we obviously end up eating more when you switch to a low carb or keto diet, this, the natural satiation, is that a word it's being satiated? Yeah, you're good. Is so much more natural <laughs> that I think it just is hard. I went through this period too, where I was so worried about my keto macros that I was under eating protein, like you mentioned, and then it ended up kind of pushing me to under eat calories for the day. Cause I didn't want to just eat more fat as well. I started having hair loss. Um, that was when I stopped having a period for a few months. And so I had to increase that protein. I realized that like eating my one pound of ribeye one meal a day that's not enough calories and so then i would do days when i would like do these intense workouts uh, for a short period of time I exercise. But I would do this intense like hour long weightlifting class at the gym. And then I would be like, Oh, today I'm eating, you know, 1.5 pounds of of beef. Well, that's still not a lot of calories. And if you're especially knowing myself, I was cutting off the big fat chunks back then, like that's a pretty lean amount of meat to then for the amount of exercise that I put my body through, no wonder my hair was falling out. And no wonder my hormones were like, We need to save all, all of our you know, whatever it is, like we got to reserve ourselves here and like stop um, having a cycle because you're not feeding me enough to function. And so I think that I just wasn't hungry. I would sit there and stuff myself, but then I wasn't hungry later in the day. And so, you know, we, I think all of us agree, like you don't have to force yourself to eat, but you definitely should be aware of how much are you eating and then make some adjustments. I had to adjust eating less beef in one sitting to eating Different kinds of foods that would allow me to be satiated, or like be, allow me to not like overstuff myself. So I added in a lot more eggs and bacon, and th- added things like butter, and um, made some adjustments to make sure that I was eating enough. And I went back to eating maybe two meals a day half the time. So it's half the time it's kind of one or two depending. But I think the natural tendency to undereat with mm-hmm. this type of high, higher protein, lower carb um, way of eating is supernatural.
2: Completely. Or
1: common. That's the
0: tricky part. When I work with a lot of the clients and then I do the food and mood journal, a lot of them are under eating and their argument is, well, I don't feel hungry. Like this is already a Mm -hmm. lot for me to eat. And so a question to you is. Like, how do you deal with the, you know, there's a lot of that mantra of eat when you're hungry, like learn your cues. And when you're, when you first go keto or low carb, you never feel hungry anymore. And you're like, oh, I could just muscle through hunger because I just am not ever hangry anymore. Um, So when you say they're not eating enough, do you have a little bit of a definition of what eating enough is?
2: Yeah. Okay. So if you don't have your blood labs and you're just going off, am I eating enough? Am I not? Um, that's a little bit more challenging. What I do with my clients is I'll get them to take pictures. If I feel like they're not eating enough, just based on their food and mood, I do the same thing. Um, I'll say, could you just take pictures of your meals instead of logging them? I just want to see pictures and just dump them all in a folder. I don't care what days or what, like just, I want to see the portions and how you're combining food. I can usually tell like if they have like small plates and there's not a lot on that small plate or, you know, so I'm, I'm working with plants and meats and, things. So I usually look for a plate that has like half vegetables on it, usually low carb vegetables, mixed greens, kale, that sort of thing, spinach. Um, and then I'll look for like a palm size of protein sort of thing. And then everything really greasy looking and filled with oils or fats or having pecans on it. Or, um, if they're doing dairy looking for that now, as a result, as it relates rather, I guess even before we talk about blood labs, um, for myself. And many of my clients, I usually start them off by understanding their labs. So I know whether or not fasting is good for them. If they're good with fasting, then I usually want to see two pretty big meals, like a good port, like good meals, like good size meals. Um, if they're not fasting, I want to see three meals and maybe a snack. If we're doing adrenal stuff, like if they have massive adrenal issues, I usually don't want them to fast. Um, if they're having issues hitting the amounts, that's when we start adding in like smoothies and blended things, soups and things like that, where we can just put in as much as possible, like protein powders, green powders, just as just enough to um, make sure that they're eating enough. And that comes with time. I think it depends on the person too. like some people will start keto and it's like three days of being really, really hungry, like all they want is carbohydrates, and then there's this lull, and all of a sudden they're not hungry, and that maybe lasts a couple of days, and then they're back to eating. But then there's some clients where that that hunger never comes back, and then it depends on the client. If I know that they're just a little bit adrenal challenged, then it's okay. Well, let's increase the carbs a little bit and see how that goes, or what would happen if we added a bit more protein and took away a little bit more fat. How does that happen with hunger? And some of it is just like. I don't care, you need to eat, sit down. And I've had to do that multiple times when I'm trying to gain weight uh, for various things. Um, And I'll, I'll really have to just force myself to eat something. And it's usually once I start eating, I'm like, Oh, yeah, I definitely was hungry. There's definitely something wrong with that. Um, and then as it results to labs, like when I'm looking at patterns of, of lab work, some of the things that I'm looking at when it comes to malnutrition or under eating is going to be things like low glucose in conjunction with now, these are patterns, it's not just one marker. And it's like, you have low glucose, you're, you're under eating. But just if I see a pattern of low glucose with low bun, um, and then I look at the carbon dioxide or bicarbonate, depending on what country you're in, if it if that is low, and the calcium is low, or it's a combination of that with the cholesterol being low. um, Those are some indications if I kind of see that pattern going on, I'm like, "Mm, you're either not eating enough, or you're not soaking up anything. And so then it's looking for the patterns of the lab work that tell me whether or not the gut is an issue. And then maybe it's that they're eating plenty, they're just not soaking up anything and their cells are starving. Um, So yeah, that's a little bit about that.
1: (laughs) I think that's so interesting. So in the carnivore world, for some reason, I mean, obviously, we know high glucose and high blood sugar is not Great, and obviously I was pre-diabetic. My husband was diabetic. Like being aware of that, having your blood sugar down into a normal range is obviously ideal. But I think in the carnivore world, there's almost this like the lower the blood sugar, the better I am, it, like contest of you know we all post our numbers and everybody pricks their finger and like people freak out if if they have a ninety on their blood glucose in the mornings. Like my glucose this morning was ninety one. Like that's pretty normal for me sometimes. But then there's this mentality of especially in carnivore I see it of the lower the better contest and like you know this stress when you're in the 80s in the morning for some reason and uh, I it, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or if it's different in the keto world, but it is definitely scary for me. I see sometimes
2: it's the same in the keto world. And I think what people need to understand that the ideal for most people now there's this anomaly we'll talk about in a second. But what I've seen is that for glucose, we want it to be around 75 to 85 because that's when insulin is not out, you know, getting it lower, or when glucose, a glucagon isn't out making it, making your glucose higher. So this like seventy five to eighty five, that's kind of where the body isn't stimulating um, insulin to get the glucose into the cells or glucagon to um, increase the glucose, and so that's kind of where we want to be. But then you have the this interesting pattern that we see with people that have been eating keto or carnivore for a while, where they're like sitting at a 60 and it's perfect and they don't have any symptoms and all is really good. So then I look at um, LDH and that can kind of indicate whether or not um, they're actually having issues. And also too, I think the big thing here is that I think sometimes we obsess too much about glucose and not understand that, Glucose and HbA1c, I mean, is it the stand, is it the gold standard of understanding what's going on with our glucose? Not entirely. And just our blood sugar overall. I think a better marker is our insulin and what's happening with our insulin. Um, and just understanding that your glucose, I think I can't remember, um, what study it was, but let's just say your HbA1c, you know, is an average of what your glucose is doing. So it can go up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, and you could have a perp perfect HbA1c but if you look at a continuous glucose monitor you're like uh what is this hot mess like this is not okay but your HbA1c could be perfect and so that's why I'm starting to think that the HbA1c and just the obsession over glucose may not be ideal it's what's what's going on with your insulin and and how we can measure that over a shorter period of time and really understanding is something called the glyco mark um and that'll just tell us how much time we spent, um, with an increased glucose of over 180 or under 180 and really gives us a better indication of our glucose and our, um, just our overall glucose patterns. And really we want to see that insulin ideally under six, but I think the other obsession is like insulin is no good. Let's try to make it zero. I, I like to see it between three and six. And so glucose. Yeah, sure. Whatever. But what's your insulin doing? And that's really, I think, a better marker for truly understanding like what's going on with your body and how's it working? Yeah, that was really
1: helpful. I think sometimes too that we see the people ensuring that their continuous glucose monitors never move. And like if they eat something that made it move at all, then that must not be an okay food and must be a bad thing. And that's not even true. It's more about how quickly does it come back down? And what does it stabilize at? And what is your normal levels? And so Um, it's good to especially if you're eating certain things, you don't want to see a big spike of something. I think that also circles back to what you said earlier about total carbs versus net carbs. If you are somebody who's tracking carbs and is more keto based, um, and not a strict carnivore, then a lot of companies can do some magic with fiber and these sugar alcohols and have something that's like 30 carbs, but it's showing three net carbs. And so focusing on things like total carbs are going to help you or, Or looking for those big spikes, Um, but having your glucose never move is could be good, but it also doesn't necessarily reflect that. I think what you're saying about insulin is really helpful.
0: I agree with Leanne. I think that there are other markers to look at, and I also look at a lot of blood work and. I mean, if your glucose numbers are always consistent and your A1C looks really good, like you said, uh, we don't know like what glucagon is doing, right? These things we're not thinking about Mm -hmm. or even how it's normal to have some shifts. Like my kids, they're low carb. And one time I showed that the night before these kids had, um, I think some French fries and foods that they don't really eat that much. So in the morning, their blood sugars were low hundreds, like 99. So I wasn't surprised by that. And then of course I get some messages from people saying, that's not healthy for your boys, you know, and it's because, yes, their blood sugar is not used to eating those types of foods. And it really depends on the individual. It depends on the situation. And so if that was my client that's been eating meat based for a while, and their blood sugars in the hundreds, yes, I wouldn't be happy with that number. But it contextually, it may, I was not surprised by the number. And yeah, so I think it's with A1Cs, um, you know the argument could also be that sometimes, as a low carb person, your red blood cells live a little bit longer, mm-hmm. and so your A1C may be higher. For example, for people that eat a meat based diet, because their red cells live longer than the average person that eats, you know, a bunch of carbs, and their cells may die after three months. But for a person that's in a ketogenic or low carb space their red blood cells may last longer and so their A1C may actually be higher than they should assume um, normally is. So. All of these different things make sometimes blood work not the most accurate or just looking at glucose. I think looking at a panel of inflammatory markers is much more ideal, including insulin.
2: Yeah, completely. And all cause mortality. You know, we think about diabetes and they get on insulin and they're going up, down, up, down, take more insulin, up, down, up, down. That's actually worse for you than staying at a higher amount. Like if I have a client who's gladly sitting at 110, I would much rather that than 280. 250, 70, like, we don't want that. And so I I totally agree with you. I think it's a big picture thing, just like coming up with the perfect diet for yourself and really working toward thing. It's not just one thing. And that's the same thing when you're reviewing labs and going through things. It's not just, okay, glucose is the number one marker, and we need to look at that. And what's the HbA1c doing? But what is everything doing? Like, how, how are we getting this beautiful holistic picture of what's happening with this client? And how do we move forward with the Proper protocol instead of just freaking out, you know, as it relates to your cycle, even as your progesterone increases throughout the latter half of your cycle, you're going to notice a difference to your glucose. And I can't tell you how many clients on like day 15 start freaking out because they wake up at 110. They're like, something we did isn't working. And I'm like, you're at the end of your cycle, it's going to be different. And so, understanding that all this stuff is not happening in a vacuum and it's going to be different depending on oh, hormones, stress levels. Did you drive the kids to soccer practice before you went and got your blood monitor? Like all of this is going to make an uh, impact as to what the numbers say and how you're feeling.
1: And those numbers can be beneficial, but like you, you've, you've mentioned, taking that one number out of context or not having somebody that you trust to read those numbers for you or not seeing a pattern over time, comparing that number to somebody else, those are all things that can really just I think, cause people to spiral or to be, to add more stress to them or to have them then dramatically change something Mm -hmm. in their diet or what they're doing because they think that it's not working. Um, And so I guess over time, over the last, however long you've been doing keto and seen it, what are some bigger trends that you've seen? How has the, the keto diet has definitely changed? I think. Um, I started on keto in 2018, kind of at the height of the explosion. There wasn't all of the keto products and stuff that were available. So the biggest trend that I've seen is this like ability to do a completely processed food keto, um, now that you couldn't have done before. And so, um, or I guess even too, I started with like Atkins of bacon and eggs many, many years ago. So I I don't know. I've seen it change. Um, What are some trends that you've seen over the years?
2: Oh man. Good Um, or bad, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Like the egg fast thing. Didn't love that. That's people still doing that. that. Oh,
1: I haven't seen it lately, but I know. So I don't know what she's talking about. It's just basically people would eat nothing but eggs for like four days or like egg products. So eggs and mayonnaise and eggs and like I mean, like, or longer than it could be like seven day egg fast, which is so funny, because as a carnivore, I'm like, you're just trying carnivore for uh, a a terrible version of carnivore for like a week, um, (laughs) where they thought that somehow, like, if they only consumed egg products, then they would lose weight.
2: Yes, it's called the Bahamas version, because the only protein you can get there is eggs. (laughs) Like, I'm sure of it. But um, yeah, I I didn't love the egg fasting. Um, So when I started, there was a lot of dairy. And a lot of like slim gyms and stuff like that, like just using yeah. basic products to like get to your macros. And then it was um – all the like bars and fibers and using that. And now I'm seeing a lot of my clients use like keto candies and keto snacks to like hit their macros, like gummy bears and stuff. And I'm like, what are you doing? This is not helpful. Um, I know I spoke at the first, like one of my first keto events. I can't even remember which one it was because it was a while ago. And I was the only one that was talking about like, modifying your keto diet to add carbohydrates sometimes depending on your cycle and stuff. And I was like fearing for my life. Like I was nervous to get up on that stage and talk about adding carbohydrates because there, I think we've gotten a lot better in the keto space now of being a little bit more tolerant to different approaches. But in 2015 ish, it was like really bad to even say have more than 20 grams of carbs. Um, and now I think companies are just so involved. And this is a good thing because we have great products, like some products that I really love. Um, most of them don't say that they're keto. I, I usually try to avoid products that say, we're keto. I'm like, no, that's probably hot garbage. Um, so that can be beneficial, but I think it creates a lot of noise. I didn't love all the keto subscription boxes. I still don't. Um, you're just going to find a lot of garbage in those things usually. Um, yeah, I think, oh, the working out, the um, uh, what was it? The cherry turnovers guy, uh, uh, Kiefer Kief something. Um, that was pretty big when I first started of like cycling your, your keto with like garbage foods. You would eat keto and then lift and then eat cherry turnovers until you were sick and then do it again. I actually did that for six months with some pretty good results. I built crazy muscle from that. Um such a stupid idea. The rest of my body really was not good. Um, but yeah, those are some of the trends that I've noticed. I find people are a lot more tolerant now um than they were like in 2015. I think as the space has grown and and carnivores now protein coming back. Like I think like Judy and I did an episode
1: on called Keto Light. Like that's the new trend in 2021, um, on these mainstream diet articles where they're talking about the biggest trend right now is keto light, which is essentially keto, but with more protein. So same low carbs, but you're eating, you're not doing that like scary low protein anymore. And I love that concept, uh, as especially as a carnivore, but also knowing where I came from, I started keto eating hot dogs wrapped in a low carb tortilla and a quest bar, you know, like that was my beginnings and it worked definitely, but it, if I hadn't have progressed in or transitioned into more whole foods and meat based mm-hmm. and things like that, it definitely um, wouldn't have gone well for me.
2: I like that keto light. I guess that's what I've been doing. Uh, that's the thing with these titles. I'm not very good at all that. I have a couple of like keto friends and they always say Leanne has just a special corner of the internet because I'm like, I don't, I just don't play with all those things. And it's so hard for me to conceptualize all the strategies. <laughs> like it's just too much. <laughs> So how do you stay in this space and not
0: get, you know, let's say you see some content and you totally disagree with it, like any of those things that you just brought up, how do you stay an advocate, but then see things that maybe you don't agree with? Do you just Mm -hmm. let it be? Do you actually advocate against it? Like,
2: (laughs) oh, I've played this game with so many things. I've gotten many letters from many associations about saying things that I shouldn't say. But I think, the biggest thing I've learned and the thing that really keeps me grounded is working with clients and just remembering like, I'm not here to argue with people. Um, It usually never turns out well. So my whole thing is if I see something on the internet where I disagree with somebody, I just share the content as it relates to what I'm experiencing, what I see my clients experiencing. And I... I think for a long time I would have, this was many years ago, I would get online. This was like before Instagram was super big and I would check out all the blogs and I would see what everyone was doing. And then I'd get really depressed and be like, I'm not doing enough. I need to share content like this. I've really stopped. And I think one of the big thing is that I don't have internet all the time because I, we've chosen to live a nomadic lifestyle. And so when I do have internet, the last thing on my mind is like, what is everyone else doing? What are they sharing? I'm like, I only have four hours of internet. I have a ton of work to do. I just don't care what other people are saying or doing. And I think it's also continuing your education. You know, I'm an, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm either in school or taking a course and that helps me stay grounded as it relates to, I mean, of course, I'm taking right now, I, d- I disagree with at least 20% of what they're saying. But it's fun to just, okay, how does this relate to what I've been experiencing and what I've seen clinically? And how do I relate that to everything else? And then it's just like, staying focused on why I'm here, which is to help the people that come that reach out to me and want to learn from me. And just like, whatever to the rest of all the noise.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think I'm slowly getting there. It's a lot of sense <laughs> in the beginning. There's a lot of this, oh, I need to protect our community, you know, mama bear type of thing and I realize you can't a lot of wasted energy a little bit and it's not like I'm gonna be the mama bear for everyone, if that even makes sense. So I think it's also like we, you know, we. that's
1: part of the reason why we want you on. You're not a carnivore. Judy and I typically are mostly strict carnivores, but I think that's why it's so important. I would never have made it to where I am today had I only listened to one small section of what's going on on the internet. Yeah. I started very wild, you know, widely based keto, but I also learned a lot during that time. And I take pieces of that that I still incorporate now. I then dove down the fasting rabbit hole and like learned from so many of those people and the carnivores and you know, the low carbon, there's just so much that I have taken from each little section of that internet. And I think that putting ourselves in this bubble of, I can only listen to that. I think there's so much nuance. And like you've talked about, there's so many different things that people need to do. Everybody is so individual and it's important for us to do our own research. And if we're looking to lose weight and to heal ourselves We need to take kind of take in everything and and find what works for us, especially if you don't have a coach. Obviously, like you guys have said, if you're working with somebody who's certified and qualified and all of those good things, um, listen to them and trust them because they're going to help you. But if you're figuring this out on your own and there's a lot of free resources, it's important to just not stick in one little corner and to make sure that you're getting a really good, bigger picture of everything.
2: I'm glad you mentioned that, Laura, because I think another thing is that like, understand who it is that you're learning from. I think that's a big thing. You know, I I know how Judy is on the internet, and you're like this mama bear, like, I just want to care for everybody. That's a person who I want to learn from. And you can tell very quickly, like, use your discernment who's in it for the wrong reasons and who you don't want to follow, because they're just not aligning with where you want to take your life, your body, you don't agree with their values. It's just that stuff matters. And all of the people on the internet, they're all these small businesses. And I really think we do vote with our dollars, even as it relates to the links that we're clicking and all of these things. If you're learning from somebody who makes you feel like hot garbage because of whatever reason, like maybe don't learn from them. If their values are completely different from yours and this isn't the life that you want to live, but you feel compelled to follow their information, it's probably a toxic relationship. Like it's a one, it is still a relationship, even though they might not know you from Adam, you you still have a relationship with that person. And it's important for it not to be this toxic, gross thing. And I've seen that a lot with clients that are like, but but I just really like how they share this one thing, but Oh, that other stuff. And I I think that really does matter. uh, At least it also could not be their.
1: It's just, it's not their fault sometimes like they're genuinely, they can be an awesome person who's sharing their story and nice, but because of even just of how skinny and great that they look and how easy they, their, their Mm. things are going for them. It upsets you and it hurts you and it triggers you. Like that's another reason too. like, not even because of they're sharing something harmful and there could be good intentions. It's just that it hurts you Mm -hmm. and it's not helpful for you. It it doesn't leave you getting off the internet, feeling good about yourself. It's time to put that down. And I don't know if you've noticed a difference in your, maybe just your mentality or your self-esteem by not being on the internet, absorbing other people's content so much. Like how does that, affect you personally
2: it's the best thing ever I recommend everyone buy a sailboat (laughs) and sail off into the distance and not see humans for months at a time (laughs) yeah I I like it completely changes you when you realize you know for myself having ran like we had 13 people on staff at healthful pursuit there for a bit like it was a bit like it was a big deal. Like it was a wow. big deal. And I kind of got to the point of like, I didn't sign up for this. I wanted to be a nutritionist helping people. And now I'm a boss of 13 people directing other people to write articles for me. And it was just too much. And so now, you know, when my husband and I dec- decided to sell all our things and move into an RV and then a sailboat and all the things that came about, I mean, there are months at a time where we're just out experiencing creation and just remembering that all that other stuff of who said who to what and that argument you had on Facebook yesterday, like it really doesn't matter. Um, and like I said, once you get reconnected to the internet, you're like, okay, watch a YouTube video about something I had a question on and answer my clients and send out an email and I'm out again. And so you really stay focused when the internet is not this you just have it all the time. You know, when we're out there, we just don't and it becomes just a really special thing. And you became very focused as opposed to just swiping constantly soaking up all this garbage on a daily basis.
1: And whether it's nutrition uh, information, or obviously politics and everything that's going on in the world right now. It's just I think you have to protect yourself and um, be aware of like how things are making you feel. And I think that's so important.
2: It is. It it completely is. I don't think we realize the consumption of food is just as important as the consumption that you do with your brain. Like all that stuff. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, you know, being back on land for a couple of months while we work, I'll like randomly be on TikTok. I have so many TikTok songs playing in my head randomly. It's just, it's not healthy. It's not okay. Like
1: it, it affects your sleep for sure. Yeah. And people's stress levels and their emotions. And I think then more than anything, then that, affects your health and it affects your weight. You know, I come from a weight loss perspective with all this. It stalls your weight if you're not sleeping enough and yep. if you're too stressed out and obviously from a health perspective and a gut perspective even. So I think it's so important to, to be aware of all that. Yep. It's a big picture.
0: Yeah. When I first shared about the liver I mean, I knew I would get pushback. I never expected it to be as much as it was. And it made me have to, I guess, reevaluate everything I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I was coming from a good place. Like There was no intention of, oh, it's for clicks. It's for click whatever the reasons that other people said. And it was genuinely for, I felt this duty that I needed to bring it up. And then I just needed to take a break from all of the internet of things. And I post um, and then I'm out and it feels so good. It's this balance of as long as I can protect my heart from my eyes and ears, then I'll be able to produce more content for the people that are still willing to listen and hear. But if I get bogged down because Nancy or Neil said something bad about me, then I'm not going to produce content that can help a wider variety of people. I think everyone needs to find their balance with the internet. For some other people, the internet provides them a community that they don't have um, in real life. I know when I first started, it definitely was a benefit for me to have some community. I still, in my world of things, other than my mom and dad, I'm, I'm the only carnivore um, around me and everyone still thinks it's crazy, right? So
2: slowly but surely they will convert (laughs) eventually they all come around
1: (laughs) hopefully it's so true um as we are wrapping up i wanted to if you have any advice for people um obviously we have a lot of carnivores on here but people i think I do think the majority of people out there are like 90% carnivore. I think the people that are 100% super strict all the time is very small percentage. I think I even myself now, like Judy talk about it, like there are times when we'll have uh, a few things or have incorporate some carbs occasionally now, um, which I think is what most people find themselves to do long-term. Um, but if people are in this space of like somewhere between carnivore and low carb and are feeling stuck, they're not having great energy, they're just not losing weight, like any tips for them or levers, I guess, obviously it's different for every person, but what are the levers that you usually start with people on that they can adjust to uh, see if those will improve things?
2: Yeah. I think the big, big, big one, and we talked about it just a little bit and it's what I love to talk about is really understanding where your hormones are at and how you can support your hormones On your ketogenic or carnivore-based diet, um, the type of eating style and even fasting schedule that you need um, on day 1 of your cycle is going to be very different from day 18 of your cycle. So, like, for example, on days 1 to 10, it's usually best to fast. Like, that's usually the time um, where fasting is really, really easy for you. So even just understanding that, if you're still cycling – fasting or doing longer term fasts. If that's something that's in your wheelhouse or you want to play around with days one to 10, great days, 11 to 14. When you're preparing for ovulation, I recommend no fasting days, 15 to 17 do a little bit of fasting and then days 18 to 28 or 31 or whatever kind of cycle you're on. I really don't recommend a lot of fasting. Um, so even just understanding the types of protocols that you're using, um, for the beginning versus the end of your cycle is big. Um, other levers are going to be, um, things like dairy. <laughs> That's a big one. Like if you're not having, um, if you're having symptoms, digestive or not, I mean, I've seen some crazy things that I didn't even think could be dairy and we remove it for a couple of weeks and add it back in. The person's like, whoa, it was the dairy doing the things. So if you're eating like loads of dairy, which I find is not as common as it used to be a couple of years ago on on keto and car- well, I don't know anything about carnivore legit like nothing. Um, <laughs> but dairy is a really big one. The fasting with your cycle is a really big one. Um, Working out with your cycle too is a really big one. So the beginning of your cycle is going to be more endurance. And the last part of your cycle after ovulation is going to be strength. So you probably wouldn't want to run like an 18 mile run on day 24 of your cycle that would suck. And so you, you might do something like that and be like, oh, my training sucks. My schedule's all over the place. I have to go back to square one. It's like no, no, try again on day four, you'll be fine. And so I think just understanding how the hormones relate to um, to your cycle. And if you have amenorrhea, um, you can still understand your cycle with the moon and use the full moon as your ovulation and the new moon as your bleed. If if you're in menopause, you just don't even listen to anything I just said, because you can literally do whatever. Um, those are kind of the the key things that I think people really Could benefit from in addition to the liver stuff that we talked about to really if you're if you're up against a wall, it's probably your liver or you just have a false expectation for where you're at at your cycle. Those are like two big ones. Where can
1: they so like, if people want to dig into that more and understand more of what you're talking about right now, where's the best place that you have available for them to dig into that? Is that your podcasts or YouTube?
2: Yeah, probably my podcast is better for that. Um, you can just go go to any podcast app that you like and search for keto. And I'm the first one. Yay. Um, it's the keto diet Yay. podcast. Um, so uh, that is a good resource. Um, and then uh, my website is a good resource. I've written a ton of blog blog posts over the years on all of that. Um, as it relates to the hormone stuff, it's a little bit more like nuanced and requires more than a blog post or a, a, a podcast could really offer. Um, so I do have a six week program that people can check out at healthfulpursuit.com slash six week. And it really gears people toward understanding where their hormones are at, whether they're cycling or not cycling or menopausal because hormones are still important when you're in menopause. That's a big thing that people think is not a problem. Um, And then taking them through the six-week process to really understand how to support their hormones uh, while eating keto um, so they can check that out if they're interested. Cool.
0: It's always so fun to talk with you. Um, and it's just good to get some information from someone that's been in the space for a while, so it's fun. So thank yeah. you. It yeah. shares a different
1: perspective. Thanks, Leanne.
2: Yeah, thank you. Anything else you want to
1: share or plug? Sorry.
2: Um, yeah, just my website is healthfulpursuit.com. You can find me on Instagram, Leanne Vogel. Um, and then yeah, my podcast, The Keto Diet, that's kind of where you can find me. I have a YouTube channel, Leanne Vogel. That's about all. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much. We appreciate having you here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for
0: tuning in to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share and leave us a review and leave any comments and questions on Apple Podcasts. We will read and answer your questions and comments on an upcoming podcast episode. This also helps us to share our real talk with more community members. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nutrition with Judy, on all podcast channels you can also follow my content on nutrition with judy's instagram youtube facebook and twitter you can find carnivore cure in paperback ebook and audio on amazon i also have a blog post and weekly newsletter with nutrition and wellness updates you can sign up at nutritionwithjudy.com you can find laura on instagram at laura Eastbath. you can follow along on her daily stories and see some of her funny skits you can also find Laura on her YouTube channel where she shares tips on living a meat-based lifestyle. If you're wondering how much meat to eat in a day, week, or month, Laura has you covered. She also shares how to make a perfect sear on a steak and how extended fasting looks like in real life. You can find her YouTube channel by searching Laura's Spath. Thanks again for listening to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. And remember, make sure to cut against the grain. Thanks for tuning in to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share and leave us a review and leave any comments and questions on Apple Podcasts. We will read and answer your questions and comments on an upcoming podcast episode. This also helps us to share our real talk with more community members. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nutrition with Judy, on all podcast channels you can also follow my content on nutrition with judy's instagram youtube facebook and twitter you can find carnivore cure in paperback ebook and audio on amazon i also have a blog post and weekly newsletter with nutrition and wellness updates you can sign up at nutritionwithjudy.com you can find laura on instagram at laura eastbath you can follow along on her daily stories and see some of her funny skits You can also find Laura on her YouTube channel where she shares tips on living a meat-based lifestyle. If you're wondering how much meat to eat in a day, week, or month, Laura has you covered. She also shares how to make a perfect sear on a steak and how extended fasting looks like in real life. You can find her YouTube channel by searching Laura's bath. Thanks again for listening to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. And remember, make sure to cut against the grain.